This week, Sears ESL $5.2 billion bid approved. PG&E groups continue to form ahead of UCC formation meeting. PHI lenders get ready to propose plan. Parties reach deal in Nine West. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast where we bring you the latest top developments in distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm Karen Long, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelding. Later, Mark Fisher, our Director of Credit Research, discusses Sanchez Energy with senior reporter Jim Holloway, distressed debt analyst Mark Gardner, and covenant analyst Peter Washkowitz. It's Sunday, February 10th. On Thursday, Judge Robert Drain approved the Sears Debtors Global Asset Sale to transform Holdco, an affiliate of ESL Investments, for $5.2 billion, allowing the debtors to emerge from post-bankruptcy as a going concern. Sears will consist of 425, quote, go-forward stores and 45,000 existing employees. In approving the sale, Judge Drain overruled the UCC's objections, which were the sole remaining ones. The UCC alleged, among other things, that the ESL affiliate's bid will leave the debtors administratively insolvent. Another objector, the PBGC, had reached settlement with Sears the night before, according to Ray Schrock of Weil Gottschall, counsel for the debtors. The settlement would reduce the PBGC's $1.7 billion in asserted unsecured claims to $800 million and terminate the Sears pension plans effective as of January 31st, among other terms. The settlement was reached after the Sears debtors disclosed in an 8K filing earlier this week that they were seeking a, quote, distressed termination of their pension plans, and PBGC independently filed a complaint in federal court seeking termination of the plans. The debtors also filed an amendment to the asset purchase agreement reflecting certain revisions to the release provisions and a services agreement between Sears and Transform Holdco outlining transitional services. In approving the sale on Thursday, Judge Drain concluded that the Sears debtors had engaged in a thorough and fair marketing process in light of significant constraints. He also rejected the UCC's argument that ESL, as an inside purchaser, had, quote, tainted the process. The record showed that the restructuring committee and restructuring subcommittee of the Sears board had acted independently, he said. Judge Drain also disagreed with the UCC's view that the value being provided under the ESL bid would be, quote, illusory. The judge concluded that ESL would, quote, in fact, perform its obligations under the agreement, because if it does not, it will be the subject of a barrage of lawsuits and it will lose its new investment. Judge Drain ended with the remark that Eddie Lampert and ESL had been the subject of, quote, substantial abuse throughout the sale process. Now that the sale has been approved, the court urged Lampert to take advantage of the opportunity, quote, not to be a cartoon character and to take actions that would benefit the debtor's constituents. In PHI, an ad hoc group of bondholders, represented by Millbank and PJT, is planning to propose a full equitization of the helicopter company's $500 million, five and a quarter senior notes, according to sources. The proposal, which has not yet been formally prepared or sent to the company, would give bondholders substantially all of the equity in a reorganized PHI, with a small amount of warrants for existing shareholders, sources added. Options for the $130 million secured loan due 2020 at the top of PHI's capital structure could include the company and bondholders agreeing to roll it into a recapitalized PHI or to pay it down with new financing, the sources said. PHI obtained the loan in September 2018 from an affiliate of the CEO and controlling shareholder, Al Gonsoline, using the proceeds to terminate its revolver and cash collateralize certain letters of credit. 
The sources confirm that the bondholder group's advisors have held discussions with DLA Piper and Hulahan Loki, PHI's advisors, and have made the company aware of its parameters. The ad hoc group plans to make a formal proposal to the company in coming weeks, the sources said. In the Pacific Gas and Electric cases, California Governor Gavin Newsom has requested that the U.S. trustee ensure that three groups, wildfire victims, employees, and customers, are provided with, quote, significant representation through the PG&E bankruptcy. That representation can be through, quote, separate committees or significant representation on one committee, according to a letter written by Nancy Mitchell of the O'Melveny Law Firm on behalf of Newsom. Separately, a footnote in her letter says that, quote, cities and counties in Northern California have formed an ad hoc group and are seeking committee status, adding that municipal governments are, quote, an important constituency with a long-term interest in a well-governed utility and thus, quote, should be recognized in the committee formation process. An ad hoc group of PG&E Corporation stakeholders, represented by Jones Day, will also seek official equity committee status from the U.S. trustee, sources told Reorg. And finally, the U.S. trustee has scheduled a tort claimants committee formation meeting in PG&E's Chapter 11 cases on February 14th at 1 p.m., according to a notice on the U.S. trustee's website. The U.S. trustee, quote, intends to form an official committee of tort claimants to represent the interests and act on behalf of all individuals with tort claims against the debtors, according to the notice. The meeting will be held at the Philip Burton Federal Building and U.S. Courthouse in San Francisco. That meeting follows the February 11th UCC formation meeting, also held by the UST in the same location. The parties in the hotly contested 9 West Chapter 11 cases have reached a global deal, debtors' counsel from Kirkland announced on Friday. This week, Judge Shelley Chapman held a confirmation trial on Nine West's plan, which was supported by all economic parties in the case, other than 2019 Notes Trustee U.S. Bank and 2034 Notes Trustee Wilmington Savings Fund Society. That version of the plan had been the result of a lengthy court-ordered mediation before retired bankruptcy judge James Peck that failed to produce a, quote, global consensus. However, Debtors' Council said on Friday that Nine West will file a new plan early next week reflecting the new global resolution, featuring improved recoveries for holders of 2034 notes claims, 2019 notes claims, and general unsecured claims against NWHI. Among other terms, Sycamore will increase its contribution to the plan by $5 million, resulting in aggregate proceeds of $120 million under the equity holder settlement. The settlement is fully supported by the Unsecured Creditors Committee, said the UCC's attorney at Friday's hearing. Judge Chapman congratulated the parties on reaching the deal and canceled the next day of the confirmation trial scheduled for Monday, February 11th. The debtors will file a notice early in the week about when the confirmation hearing will continue. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, Judge Laura Taylor Swain issued a series of rulings this week in connection with the court's approval of the Commonwealth COFINA Settlement Agreement and confirmation of the COFINA Title III plan. In her memorandum opinion and order granting approval of the COFINA settlement, which was a precursor to the ultimate COFINA plan of adjustment, Judge Swain characterized the settlement as a, quote, reasonable compromise of the so-called Commonwealth COFINA dispute, but acknowledged that the settlement was not, quote, perfect. 
recognizing that the dispute implicates, quote, hundreds of millions of dollars of projected annual revenues over a period of decades, Judge Swain expressed hope that it can, quote, pave the way for responsible officials to marshal resources, reach future agreements, and design a plan of adjustment for the Commonwealth that meets Promise's goals of achieving fiscal responsibility and access to capital markets for the benefit of the Commonwealth, its people, and its many other stakeholders. Separately, the Title III Court issued its Memorandum of Findings of Fact and Conclusions of Law relating to its decision to confirm the COFINA Title III Plan of Adjustment. Judge Swain called the COFINA Plan, quote, a significant step on the path towards Puerto Rico's financial recovery, economic stability, and prosperity. In a related dispute involving Section 19.5 of the plan, Judge Swain ruled on Thursday that COFINA trustee Bank of New York Mellon was authorized to withhold $20 million from White Box. In reaching her conclusion, Judge Swain concluded that COFINA was obligated to indemnify BNYM for its litigation fees and expenses, and that the BNYM has a charging lien on COFINA funds to protect its right to those payments. Earlier in the week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit heard oral arguments in the appeals by Puerto Rico Senate President Thomas Rivera Schatz and Puerto Rico House Speaker Representative Carlos Johnny Mendez related to Judge Swain's opinion dismissing the Puerto Rico Legislative Assembly's lawsuit against the PROMISA Oversight Board and its members. The lawsuit took issue with the certification of the June 2018 fiscal plan and the fiscal 2019 budget. After hearing arguments on Wednesday, the First Circuit took the appeals under advisement. The court did not indicate a timeline for a ruling, but Judge Sandra Lynch said that the court appreciates the, quote, importance of the case before it. Other top-read stories of the week were, number one, Full Beauty Brands files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the Southern District of New York. Number two, Clear Channel Outdoors announces post-separation board of directors. And number three, Acosta sees several different paths to optimize capital structure. Management declines to address capital structure on FY 2018 earnings call. And now, from his office in Houston, here's Jim Holloway with what's to come in the week ahead. Thanks, Connor. Greetings, everybody. This is the week that earnings start to pick up for those of us in our part of the market, starting with Monday, February 11th, Avaya and Bristow. Bristow's having been rescheduled from an earlier date, so this has the potential to be interesting, perhaps. Tuesday, February 12th, don't worry, lawyers, plenty for you to do this week. Pre-trial conference in residential capital, motion to dismiss an allocation motion in Waypoint Leasing, and an omnibus for Pacific Gas and Electric, a company which for me will be forever associated with Enron's Wiley Trading Desk. Wednesday, February 13th. Happy Hump Day, everybody. We have earnings from Diebold and Teva Pharmaceuticals. In Westmoreland, the trial begins here in Houston with respect to Westmoreland's motion to reject collective bargaining agreements, a move to which the United United Mine Workers has objected. Also on the labor capital front, there is in California a hearing on the Verity Health Debtors motion to reject collective bargaining agreements. This would be with nurses and other service personnel. And if you just can't get enough of the Golden State, never fear, there's a motion to intervene in the adversary FERC case in PG&E. On to Thursday, February 14th. Yes, it's Valentine's Day. More importantly, though, there's a disclosure statement hearing in Aegean Marine. Earnings from Bombardier, Avon, and Hornbeck Offshore. Be interesting to see if Mr. Todd's outlook for the Gulf of Mexico activity and any color on the exchange which was just completed by the company. 
On Friday, February 15th, earnings from Cengage and First Quantum. Second day hearing for Jim Burry, and a coupon is due on the seven and a quarter senior secureds due 2023 issued by Sanchez Energy. And I'll be right back in a bit to talk more about that. Thanks, Jim. More on all that next week, I'm sure. And now, as promised, here's Mark, Jim, Mark, and Peter to discuss Sanchez Energy. Thanks, Connor. I'm here today, uh, back again with uh, Jim Holloway, who once again is our energy expert. I'm also here with Mark Gardner, a distressed financial analyst, and Peter Washkowitz, um, who is uh, one of our covenant analysts. And we're going to talk about, as Connor mentioned, Sanchez Energy, which is actually a name that we've spoken about on the podcast uh, a couple of times, um, summing up uh, some past quarters, looking at uh, different um, fields. Uh, Sanchez plays in the um, the Eagle Fur, which is one area that we've discussed um, at length, um, at, you know, at different times. But Sanchez is sort of a unique um, situation. Bonds have been hit, um, as has performance, uh, and it's it's one where um, you know we've heard some basic rumblings, um, you know, going on about uh, potential um, potential restructuring uh, of their capital structure, or at least a capital structure that likely needs to be uh, addressed. So we're going to talk about the company today, where they are, um, or what we know uh, as far as any sort of negotiations or conversations that are taking place with um, with the company and stakeholders. And then uh, we'll look at what sort of options uh, they might have. So to, to start, just to give a brief overview of the capital structure, we're talking about um, Two and a half billion, um, actually close to three billion in in total uh, debt um, and preferred, both at um, uh, parent and and certain operating subsidiaries, which we'll go into. However, um, that debt right now is deeply discounted in terms of where it's trading. You have um, secured notes, a five hundred million dollar tranche um, that's in the eighties, and then you have unsecured notes actually um, that are in the um, in the twenties, all maturing at different time, but early in, um, in the 20s. The first maturity is uh, June of 2021. So with that, Jim, if you could uh, you know, give us an overview of, of, of the company, please. Well, thanks, Mark. And uh, hello, everybody. It's me again. Sanchez Energy. Sanchez's are an old Texas family with roots out in El Paso. The fortune was made by um, Tony Sanchez's grandfather, Antonio Sanchez I, who founded a bank. Um, then there was Antonio Sanchez II, Tony's father, who founded Sanchez Oil and Gas and once ran as a Democrat for governor against Rick Perry and lost. And now Antonio Sanchez III, who before joining the family company was an M&A banker at J.P. Morgan. Tony III has some siblings, as does Sanchez Energy. There's a Sanchez Midstream, to whom Energy is sold some acreage and with whom it has some midstream contracts, and a management fee is paid to Sanchez Oil and Gas. So now Sanchez Energy, like a lot of E&Ps, grows reserves and production through M&A. And uh, they've always been pretty active in that market. In 2015, they acquired a 106,000-acre block in the Western Eagleford from Shell. They named it Katarina. And while there were some hiccups initially, it's turned into a very solid performer, and it's the focus of the company's capex this year. Katarina rather than Comanche, which has really been the source of the company's woes. Uh, Sanchez bought 
bought Comanche, excuse me, in 2017, a 155,000 net acre block from Anadarko, which they did jointly with Blackstone. Remember that name. Uh, You know, at the time, it really looked like the company was aiming for the bigger leagues. Uh, On the call, uh, when Tony was discussing the purchase, I did mention he was an M&A banker at JP. Well, you got the idea listening to him that this rather complex structure they'd put together to buy the asset. He was uh, pretty proud of it. And uh, even suggested it could be a model for additional M&A going forward. Thanks for that, uh, that Jim. Um, we're going to go on to Mark now. If you can, um, you know, talk us through, um, you know, some more specifics around uh, the numbers. And actually, Jim had mentioned uh, the uh, the Comanche acquisition. So, uh, you know, if you could talk about that. Yeah, sure. So uh, Sanchez Energy, uh, they're an independent uh, EMP company, and and like you had mentioned before, they're primarily focused in the Eagleford Shale in Texas. So the the company has three main assets which are uh, Maverick, Katarina, and Comanche. Uh, so as of uh, September 30th, kind of like on an LTM basis, the company's produced about uh, 79,000 BOE per day, 34% of that coming from oil, uh, another 34% coming from NGLs, and about uh, 32% coming from nat gas. So uh, when you look at the Comanche acquisition, which closed in uh, March, of 2017 and kind of the maybe the motivations around that for the company uh, it had to do with increasing production and the ability to do that without actually uh, having Sanchez really risk their own balance sheet to do that so uh, part of the the ability to finance acquisition was also uh, something that's actually hurt uh, the company's ability to to take value from uh, that Comanche field so, uh, so how the acquisition was financed was Sanchez created an unrestricted subsidiary called Unsub, which financed about uh, 75% of the acquisition. Uh, and then Sanchez used its restricted sub called uh, Maverick, SNEF Maverick, to finance the remaining, uh, you know, about 25% of that. All in the acquisition was about a, a billion dollars when, when Sanchez paid for its stake. Uh, you know, in the Comanche assets. Great. So, you know, how how do you think about these these assets? You mentioned um, how it's split within uh, Sanchez. You have the unsub. You have the restricted group. I think you said seventy five twenty five. Any differences in terms of uh, production wells? Um, anything that's uh, that, that's there at these entities? Uh, yes, there. Uh, Yes, there, there is a, a difference in terms of uh, how it was actually uh, divvied up from the initial uh, purchase. So Unsub, as part of the, the initial purchase, because Unsub did the majority of the financing of that acquisition, uh, Unsub received uh, about 100% of the, uh, the PDPs at, uh, at Comanche uh, from, for day one, and then it received Forty uh, percent of of future uh, kind of like drilling and in production from future wells uh, past that. Whereas, uh, and the the reason being is because it had to finance, uh, you know, had to had to pay off the acquisitioning acquisition financing that it used in order to make that purchase. Whereas uh, Sanchez's Maverick entity that helped uh, finance the twenty five percent or so of the acquisition, 
they only re- they received only uh, or sixty percent of future production, but uh, no percentage of the actual uh, PDPs on on day one. Oh, interesting. So the unrestricted subsidiary, which I think you also mentioned, has a, a unique financing structure as well, uh, was more about the current producing assets, those PDPs that, 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 that you mentioned. What, what is that um, financing structure that's, that's there at, at that unrestricted subsidiary? So uh, the way that, uh, p- part of the way that Unsub was able to finance its portion of the acquisition was through uh, issuing preferred, uh, preferred units, uh, m- predominantly to, uh, to GSO. There's also another uh, smaller party that, that owns a, another portion of those uh, initially. And, uh, but the way that those preferred uh, units work is they don't allow for distributions to go outside of Unsub uh, until the actual preferreds are, are paid, paid off. So Sanchez uh, Energy, you know, parent doesn't really receive any value f- from the actual uh, unrestricted sub until those preferred units uh, are redeemed. Um, on top of that, there is a, a 10% distribution rate off of that 500 million in preferred units that unsub has to uh, pay. Otherwise, uh, those preferred units will have the ability uh, under the terms of the agreement to kind of force uh, force a sale. Um, on top of that, there's also a premium that uh, that needs to be paid as part of the redemption of the preferred units. Uh, we it, it has to do with uh, calculating it calculating it based off the greater of uh, a 14 percent uh, IRR and uh, one and a half times return on investment, uh, both inclusive of inclusive of uh, previous distributions paid. Uh, so we estimate that to be about 658 million all in um, preferred uh, preferred unit price plus the premium as of uh, first quarter. Interesting. Um, so Jim, you know, going um, coming back to you, how has the asset performed uh, since since it was acquired, and I guess how has uh, Sanchez um, uh, uh, performed? Has it um, have they hit their plans? Well, um, no, unfortunately, and the company has been very forthcoming on their challenges at Comanche and the reason for them. Um, They went with an aggressive choke management. This is something that controls the rate at which the hydrocarbon comes up the pipe, and I reckon they set it to 11 like the Spinal Tap guitar player set his amplifiers, and it seemed to have uh, accelerated the decline rate. Um, These wells had also been originally drilled by Anadarko at intervals of 330 feet, which was the rule of thumb at the time. Um, that rule of thumb has now grown to 660 feet, spacing of 660 feet between the wells, because people found that if the spacing is too close, there's a big pressure of there's a big risk, excuse me, of losing pressure in contiguous wells, and you also risk the frack from one well bursting into the bore of a producing well, which can put them both out of commission. This is something known as a frack hit that we've talked about before here. Um, last but not least, they were targeting the Upper Eagleford. Um, that's not a bench that you that EMPs have usually 
gone to, and um, in this case, it did not deliver what they had hoped. Uh, when the deal was actually announced in January of 2017, as I mentioned before, um, Tony said that he expected to be producing about 100,000 um, BOE a day in 12 to 18 months. In the third quarter last year, they got to 80,000 BOE a day, and that was after having taken some steps like a more conservative choke management, going to artificial lift and so on. And, of course, on the third quarter call, the company said it and its Comanche partners, which includes GSO, had decided it's a good time to cut CapEx there until it had 6 to 12 months of production results to study. Thank you for that, Jim. Um, so, Mark, if you could tell us then, you know, it, it doesn't sound like they've really hit uh, their, their numbers. Where are they right now in terms of uh, a, a breakout? You know, if you look at the whole company, but then also um, if we break it apart between the unrestricted group and everything else. Right. And I think that's probably the best way to look at this company is in, in terms of kind of uh, restricted versus the, the unsub portion. So uh, the restricted portion of Sanchez, we estimate that's around uh, 400 million in uh, adjusted EBITDAX, whereas we uh, we have kind of like unsub generating about uh, 167 million uh, in adjusted EBITDAX, and that's on a LTM basis as of uh, September 30th. Uh, also, to uh, just again like where where the actual cash is being generated and where it's not is uh so sanchez again the restricted group we estimate that they're probably generating around a uh, negative 220 million in cash whereas unsub generates uh positive 20 million in cash interesting so, so i guess that's that's likely on the restricted side because uh, of heavy capex um heavy interest burden that that um that that entity has right uh yes the the company has has been burning uh, through its cash and its its capital plan has been heightened, uh, you know, from the original amount that it it had been uh, it had set out when it initially gave guidance in 2018. Uh, in part of this this production, which Jim has kind of mentioned, uh, uh, like previously, was that uh, due to this due to them spending more on capex and not having the, the exact like great uh, production results to warrant that. They've actually recently taken down CapEx guidance. Um, now they're saying they're focused on maybe going into around uh, 350 million for a run rate spend coming into uh, 2019. And how much liquidity do they have now as a company? So Sanchez has about uh, 281 million in cash that's accessible to the parent and guarantor subs. There's about uh, 80 million that's uh, that's actually at the non-guarantor subs. We're not exactly sure how much is actually of that at unsub, and the company has not disclosed that. Great. Uh, so, Jim, you know, clearly seems like uh, things are a little bit constrained here. Where what what's the rumblings in terms of stakeholder company conversations? Has anyone? hired any advisors at this point? Yes, the company is working with MOLIS, which they announced last year. Its legal counsel is Kirkland, and in, historically they've always worked with both Kirkland and Aiken Gump. Uh, Davis Polk has been speaking to some unsecured holders, and according to reports, Quinn Emanuel is with a 2023 holder. But I think the sense in the market is that we need to see Q4 earnings and, more importantly, the reserve report and any changes to that and the number of drilling locations before anything gets serious. Great. Thanks, Jim. Um, so moving on to Peter, you know, who's looked at um, all the documents um, here 
Uh, Peter, you know, what, what can you talk about? You know, clearly a, a tough situation here, um, but you do have some debt. Um, you do have some cash on the books. Um, you know, first in thinking about uh, the company's outstanding debt, uh, trying at pretty low prices, what, what ways do they have now to address um, those, those maturities? Um, and, you know, can they take advantage of any of these, uh, these low prices in the market? Sure, Mark. So under the company's first lien secured notes, uh, the restricted payments covenant restricts the company from repaying the senior unsecured notes, but does provide a couple baskets that will give it some capacity. Um, there's a $40 million general restricted payments basket and then there is a builder basket based on 50% of consolidated net income that is accessible if uh, Sanchez can meet a two and a quarter times fixed charge coverage ratio. Uh, as of 9.30, we had calculated uh, the company's uh, fixed charge coverage ratio to be 2.35 times. Um, so it had a little capacity under that basket as well. Um, we're waiting for its first quarter results, or rather its year-end results, to see if it could still meet that. But at a minimum, the company has $40 million of capacity to purchase the notes in the open market. It may have uh, some additional capacity under the builder basket. Now, under the restricted, under the uh, asset sale covenant, um, the, the first lien notes allow the company to use $500 million of proceeds to either transfer to unsub to fund uh, purchases of the preferred shares, or it can use $500 million of proceeds to repurchase the 2021 notes uh, in the open market. Because, you know, we've written about um, the SSL covenants under the existing unsecured notes uh, that would not allow the $500 million to be invested in unsub, but would not restrict the company from using the $500 million of proceeds to repay the 2021 notes. So the company likely has some additional capacity there. Um, but besides the prepayment covenant and the $500 million of asset sale uh, proceeds, the company is unable to use any additional funds to repay or to purchase any of the senior unsecured notes in the open market. All right. Well, thank you, Peter. Um, and of course, uh, Mark, thank you. Jim, thank you very much. That was a great overview of Sanchez and companies going to, I guess, report fourth quarter uh, pretty soon. So we'll look for any updates uh, there. And this is certainly an active situation. So I appreciate um, all your insights. And Connor, back to you. Thank you. And thanks for listening. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the media page, or if you're not a subscriber, iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Connor Skelding, and this has been The Week in Reorg.